We would like to thank Alice, Paul, Chelsea, Kelsey, Amanda, Emily, Elizabeth, Lainey, Karen, Megan, Rosemary, Angela, Jenny, Amanda, and Rachel for supporting us on Patreon.com. To support The Nuanced Life, just pledge $5 at Patreon.com slash The Nuanced Life, and you will get a bonus episode of The Nuanced Life each month. It's a very simple process. You just go to Patreon, and you'll get a bonus episode in your audio feed once a month. This month, we are going to be talking about switching out of mommy mode and in to partner mode. What are the challenges of having especially small children and maintaining a healthy relationship with your partner? So it's patreon.com slash the nuanced life and we are excited to continue the conversation there. I'm Sarah and I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and host of the bipartisan podcast Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. conversation about the glamorization of work and a short conversation about Mother's Day. Before we share something to leave you inspired for the rest of the week, we also wanted to go ahead and share with you what's going to be on next week's The Nuanced Life, which is our conversation with Kendra from The Lazy Genius. And we are so excited to have her on the show and share that conversation with you. I love Kendra from The Lazy Genius. I like to think of her as my neighbor, like my digital neighbor. I just feel like we would get along really well. So I can't wait for her to be here. Two weeks ago, we had a conversation with Ann Bogle of The Modern Mrs. Darcy about decision fatigue, and we got a really great piece of feedback from one of our listeners, Sloan, who said, I enjoyed your conversation with Ann. I've been following Ann for years and have incorporated a lot of her thoughts. However, there was one thing that struck me while listening. When Ann was talking about going to Lululemon and buying the $80 leggings, I realized that some of the ways to solve decision fatigue end up coming from a place of privilege. Most people, me included, and I'm a white woman in the upper middle class, cannot just drop that kind of money to solve a problem. This conversation also harkens back to the self-care versus self comfort conversations I've been hearing. Massages and nail appointments cost money. Sometimes this money is well spent. I often encourage my husband to get a massage because it relieves his stress and I don't have to rub his back as much double win. However, even that can come from being privileged. I do understand her point in a lot of ways because I've been agonizing over buying some workout shorts from ThreadUp. They're $20 and we have the money to buy them, but is that a good use of my money? I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm probably just going to buy them as soon as I send this email, but sometimes we have to be thoughtful about decisions, even if it does cause fatigue because of long-term implications that we can't even see. It's a really good point. And something that comes up for us a lot is that the two of us are white women. We are middle class white women. We have really supportive spouses and really supportive families and friends. And it is often limiting to our perspective. And so I appreciate it when listeners call us back to a broader view of things. I think one of the most helpful things I've done to think through the implications of money versus time is two things. One, there's a really good book called Your Money or Your Life that I read that really encourages you to break down how much time it takes you to earn money or how much money your time costs, basically. So you break down your salary and say, like, if I want to buy $80 leggings, that's however many hours or minutes of work I have to do to afford them. And it really crystallizes, like, is this 
am I going to spend six hours, if I have to spend six hours to earn the $80, or am I going to spend six hours to do the research and it wouldn't be worth my time anyway, if that makes sense. So the, the, the sort of interplay of deciding how much your time is worth, I think is so important to making sure you're doing these decisions, making these decisions responsibly. There's also a really cool tool I did recently because the, your money or your life was difficult for me in one way because I'm a freelancer, and so it's it's sort of it's a it's a difficult mathematical problem to figure out how much I earn per hour because of the way my husband and I both earn money is not like a salary per hour basis. But there's a really cool website. What is your time really worth? Where you do all these sort of thought experiments to decide um, whether whether you want to save time or whether you want to save money, depending on how much you're spending or saving. And I think that's that's the that's what you really have to work out, right? If you're going to spend six hours driving around town um, to try to find cheaper leggings, is that really worth the? Is your time worth ten dollars an hour? Then maybe it would be worth it, you know, to get the twenty dollars leggings instead of the eighty dollars leggings. I mean, it's a lot of math, but I think once you kind of wrap your head around just a loose approximation of like how much it takes you to earn money. And or how much your time is worth, sort of different sides of the same coin, it really helps me think through those things. Because, you know, our brains are not great um, at sort of just the rational analysis of so many processes, particularly when it comes to time and money. So really having a place to look to say, okay, wait, Sarah, you make $75 an hour. Are you? Is it worth $150 to you to paint this as opposed to paying somebody to paint the room? So I'm doing a lot of stuff around my house. And so I think I have to think through like, the time savings and the cost and the money and the, the the just the energy and processing. And I think that's, you know, depending on how much available money you have to solve those resources is absolutely a, a place of privilege. But I do think there's value in really thinking through, like, how much time do I have to spend to earn $100 and then using that or whatever it is to, to, to make those calculations. Another way to think about decision fatigue is outside of consumer choices in general, mm-hmm. because we get fatigued by how am I going to respond to certain situations? Am I going to exercise or not? Which way am I going to drive today? I mean, there are all kinds of places in life where we can make decisions ahead of time that help us just preserve our processing power for other things. I was just saying to a client of mine who's in a really stressful time in her life, Here's your plan. Every time you start feeling really stressed, you're going to get a glass of water. You're going to take a short walk and you're going to try to go outside if you can. Just go to those three things. Make them Mm -hmm. your three things every time. You don't have to make a decision about how you're going to deal with your emotions. That's going to be your system. And that's advice that a good friend shared with me a while back and has really stuck with me. Glass of water, short walk, go outside. I think it's brilliant. And so I don't think that the conversation about decision fatigue should be limited to purchasing goods and services. I think there are ways to think about how can I plan ahead in my life. Another way that I do this a lot, and Sarah, you've taken some of my online classes, so you know that this is a thing for me. I like to come up with just scripts. Like if I have Mm -hmm. to approach a difficult discussion, I like to have sort of a plug and play script for how I'm going to have that conversation. I like to have words and phrases ready for discussions that I know I'm going to go to. I don't want them to sound tired or annoying to the people in my life. But it gives me a confidence to know that if I get in a conversation with someone that gets difficult, I can say things like, can you say more about that? And, you know, and I just don't have to think of a response. I don't have to feel that pressure of being on the spot because I have a way of handling things that I've decided ahead of time. 
I always just struggle with it's it's a just you know sort of self perpetuating problem because the more decision fatigued I am, the harder it is for me to remember to use those tools. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's why cultivating them over a long period of time is really important. Okay, so this is a fundamental difference between the two of us, right? You like a lot of information input. And for me, that leads me to a sense of decision fatigue because now I have too many tools at my disposal. So I try to keep things really simple for myself as a way of making sure that I will use the tools at my disposal instead of having too many tools that I don't use. Mm -hmm. I try to have just a few things that really speak to me that are my go-tos over and over again. Yeah, I did the strengths assessment a few years ago and found that information is like a strength. I really do like, I love a lot of information. But I've had to like walk that back and pump the brakes a bit because there is just a certain point where I I wore it as a badge of pride. Oh, I love more information. I don't get overwhelmed. But that's not really true because I still have a basic human brain that can only take in so much. And I've really had to recognize that and how that does play a role in sort of my distraction and my fatigue. Um, And setting up those triggers and those processes are helpful. It's just, man, I have to have a hard trigger. Like it just can't, I cannot depend on my brain to be like, remember to do this. I have to have some sort of like visual clue or routine that I know this goes with this. It's, it's, it's the remembering that's always so hard for me. Yeah. I think that decisions about time are the hardest. And the more that I can kind of simplify my decisions about time, the better off I am. One thing that is such a struggle for me, I just hate working out. I always Mm. have hated it. I probably always will hate it. I just don't enjoy it. I don't want to join a gym right now. I do not want to spend the money or the time on that. And so I, but I do want to get serious about exercising and I want to do it every single day consistently in a way that I will not burn out. And so I've made a decision about, I really like Leslie Sansone. Do you know Leslie Sansone? No. Okay, so she has this program called Walk at Home. It used to be called Walk Away the Pounds. I appreciate that they have changed the title. And it is literally just walking, and she adds in a couple of moves where you're working different muscle groups in the arms and legs while you do it. The music is obnoxious. It's kind of cheesy. It works for me. I can do it. I feel great after I've done it. I sleep better. My back doesn't hurt. And I know it's something that I can do, like if I'm sick, I can still do it. If I am really struggling with a fibromyalgia issue, I can still do it. Because she has versions that are, you know, one mile that you do in 15 minutes all the way to three, four, five miles that are longer workouts. So I have this range of options, but it is just her. I'm going to go to YouTube. I'm going to turn it on. I'm going to do it every day. And that's the kind of, you know, that costs me nothing And it's the kind of decision that I can make ahead of time to help me accomplish a goal that's important to me in my life, keeping it very simple. What I struggle with is I get it and I get something working and then I get bored. (laughs) The person who the medicine starts working and then I decide I don't need the medicine anymore. That's what I struggle with. And I think that part of that, though, is just deciding what in my life needs to not be boring to me. Mm-hmm. And and exercise for me is something that I want it to be boring to me. I just want to get myself in a place where it's like brushing my teeth. This is just a thing I do. And I don't have to think about it because I'm not going to get this is the, I think there's a calculus, right? If I were ever going to get a lot of enjoyment out of it, then maybe I would have that perspective. I'm not. 
So I'm just trying to go with like, what can I make myself do? There are other things in my life like cooking. I don't want to get on a meal plan because I really enjoy that. And so that's worth the decision-making process to me. Well, we appreciate the feedback as always. The other thing we wanted to discuss and definitely hear from you guys about is Mother's Day. Beth, are you thumbs up or thumbs down on Mother's Day? I like a holiday. I like ceremony and ritual, as we've talked about before. I like opportunities to kind of reflect and celebrate each other. I don't want a bunch of presents or pressure around Mother's Day. I feel like I've got enough to do as a mom that I don't want celebrating. I'm just sorry. I don't I don't want celebrating other mothers in my life to become a whole other piece of work. I sort of wish Mother's Day could just be like, dear America, today every woman is going to take a nap. <laughs> the end. I don't want a nap. I want presents. Not surprisingly. I feel differently. Um, I love Mother's Day. I have had more than one fight over with my husband about like, no, this is the Mother's Day. <laughs> with this Mother's Day. Um, one year, because I feel very strongly about breakfast in bed on Mother's Day because I never get breakfast in bed any other day. I can't even get my husband to make me coffee in the morning. I really, I lay down the, I want the breakfast in bed. One year I had to like pull up Flickr and be like, no, see, this is a thing we do. Here's when you brought in this year. Here's when you brought, because he was trying to say that this is not a thing we do. And I'm like, no, no, I have, I have the receipts. I want my breakfast in bed. The, the, my most favorite gift though is not like an actual physical present. Although I do enjoy those, um, is I saw this tip on Real Simple, luckily very early before Griffin, I think when Griffin was a baby, they said like, get a big, nice like just plain paged book and either, you know, paste your kids' artwork or Nicholas just has them do something every year in the book. So like all my Mother's Day little art will be in one book eventually. I mean already That's sweet. It is. Oh, it's awesome. I love getting my little book and seeing what they did in it this year. Um, I don't think my husband enjoys uh, finding the crafts in the book, but I don't care because it's not Father's Day. It's Mother's Day. <laughs> I love my little book, and I love when they come in there and they have their little crafts. Um, it's just it's one of my favorite moments every year. I'm all about being celebrated, um, and I'm all about celebrating my mom and my grandmother and my mother-in-law. I I just I love it. I like uh, the flowers. I like the special church services. Um, I'm all about it. I love Mother's Day. I'm so tired right now because both of my girls say mom 6,000 times a day. Why do they do that? Mommy, mom, mom, mom. I mean, it is constant. I don't know why they do that. Is there a child development expert out there that can tell us why they do that? Because that (laughs) might help me if I had some sort of framework to put around. Like, it will be just me and Griffin in the room sitting, like, facing each other. Mom. And I'm like, okay, just start talking, honey. Just start talking. You don't have to say mom. (laughs) And it's just, it's... I don't know what it is, but it just makes my ears so tired. Mm. And so really all I want for Mother's Day is a little bit of a break. You know, I love them so much, but I want a little bit of a break. The other thing that makes me just. (laughs) The other thing that makes me a little bit squeamish about Mother's Day is I'm on this real crusade with Jane and, and Ellen, too, about, like, how we just all take care of our house together because we all belong here together in the house, and it's all of our responsibility. And so there's a part of me that kind of cringes at the idea of, hey, let's have a big production about mommy's role here when I am constantly saying, 
no, you don't get a bunch of accolades for picking <laughs> up your shoes. We just pick up our shoes, you know? Uh, that's so much nicer the way you framed work. Um, the whole you contribute minus more unless you would like to find a new place to live you will help around this home because you live here and you help and if you don't want to help find somewhere else to live six-year-old I mean I'm a little (laughs) nicer than that but not much yesterday Griffin was like I didn't even make this and I said do you know how much time I spend cleaning up messes I don't make all of the time I spend all of the time cleaning up messes I don't make Sir. Jane does that constantly, too. This was Ellen's stuff, and I always say, that wasn't my question, Jane. I just ask you to help me pick it up. That was my question. I always say, did I ask you whose it was, or did I tell you to pick it up? Which one was it, friend? I mean, kids, hurry up and be adults, but don't really. I love you so much. Stay snuggly. I love you. (laughs) Hurry up and be adults who aren't stressed out all the time, which is what we are going to talk about next in our segment on the glamorization of work. This weekend, I was reading Me Too Long Reads, because that's my favorite hobby, is reading anything (laughs) and everything that the internet produces about the Me Too movement. And there was this really wonderful piece on the New York Review of Books Daily by Rhea Bravo, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her first name correctly. It is called The Open Secret of Charlie Rose, Charlie Rose, former host of um, The Charlie Rose Show on PBS and CBS This Morning has um, been sort of pushed out of the industry based on multiple reports of sexual harassment, to- um, hostile work environment, toxic behavior towards his coworkers. And one of the women who has accused him of this wrote a long piece. And this is the line that I was like, oh, my goodness, I cannot wait to talk to Beth about this article. So she is talking about what happened. She is talking about... Why did I even once put up with it? Why did I do this? Everyone's asking what happened to women's agencies. And she talks about she was highly educated. She had a strong support network. Um, She knew that this open secret about that he had this behavior. She says, the more I struggled to manage the situation, the deeper I sank. The only option was to leave my job with an immense sense of shame. Were I a better woman, I told myself I would have found a way to fight back. Instead, I had exhausted myself with pleasantries and smiled attentively while doing my best to avoid finding myself alone with him. So she's, she's working through all this, and she asks, how did this happen? She says, but perhaps the most significant, even more significant than my career aspirations and my dependence on a paycheck was that Rose's advances occurred in a professional environment of madness, anxiety, and utter exhaustion. I mean, I sat with that sentence for a while. Not really that long, because I immediately texted Beth and was like, we have to talk about this. I have so much to say about work and the way that we are constantly living in madness, anxiety, and utter exhaustion absolutely needlessly and how it it completely breeds a loss of agency and a sense of cruelty mm-hmm. in the workplace. And this is something that I experienced myself and I have talked with countless people from countless industries. I don't think this is – her article is written about media – I think it could apply almost anywhere. I can assure you it happens in politics, both on the Hill and in campaigns. We do this everywhere. We have somehow, and this is a conversation we started in, in a previous Nuance Life. We have somehow taken the idea that there is virtue in working hard. 
and turned that into there is virtue in being nothing but a worker. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice everything on the altar of work. Yes. And then where is the badge of honor? And where does a badge of honor? I love that um, quote that you see online sometimes. It says, stop the glorification of busy. Mm-hmm. But that is where we are. We have said there is nothing bigger and more important and more admirable than a person who cannot look up from their phone because they're so busy and important that they have emails coming in. A person who is late everywhere they go because they are pulled in so many different directions. I mean, we have essentially said, if you are healthy and at rest, you must be lazy. And you're not important. It's not just lazy. It's that you're not important, right? Which means mm -hmm. a lot of things, right? You're not um, smart enough. You're not capable enough. You're not responsible enough. You don't care enough about your family to work hard. Like the idea that you have to be industrious all day, every day, it's just insane, but it is pervasive. I don't know anybody who hasn't struggled through or isn't in the throes of struggling through this sense that I have never worked enough. So, yes, you do, me, and I've been thinking about, about why I'm not like that. <laughs> so even when I was in Capitol Hill, because that, especially when I worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign, that was, like, that's... That was the badge of honor, right? Who worked the hardest? Who stayed up the latest? Who sacrificed the most? Who hadn't eaten? Who hadn't exercised? Who had, like, it was, that was, that was the badge of honor. That was the way to be. And I've thought a lot about why I never felt pressure to be a part of that. I never wanted to be a part of that. I, I ran from that in both. I left the campaign and then I eventually left Washington, D.C. And I think it's because, not surprisingly, Paducah as paradise is going to be the theme here. Not really. But I grew up in a place, you know, when I, when I was growing up, all of my friends' parents worked. I knew very few stay-at-home moms. So everybody was working. And there was value, value in working, absolutely. And people prided themselves on being hard workers. But I don't know if it's because I was sort of in small-town America and not an urban setting. But it was never presented to me as, right, but the very successful people here work all the time. Like even the lawyers and the doctors, I never heard that, which is sort of the, you know, the, the, the best thing you can be in a small town as a doctor or a lawyer. And it just wasn't, I never heard that. I never saw that. It was like the people I looked up to, the people I knew who had successful careers and businesses, they worked and they did well. But like the culture here is people go home at five and they don't work on the weekends. And people like go to their lake houses and have a good time and spend lots of time with their family and at churches and in community organizations. And so I just never saw it. Like I knew it was like the cool thing on TV. Like I watched West Wing and I knew those people worked all the time. That's what you did if you worked in the White House. You just worked until you couldn't work anymore. And I like sort of got that. But I, I just didn't grow up seeing that. And I didn't even though I did feel a little bit of a narrative of like successes outside of Paducah, which I truly try to fight with my own kids because it's not that I don't think they can pursue happiness outside of this town, but I think that the idea that you can only be successful if you live in a big city and you live in one of these big glamorous careers is totally false. And so when I, when I encountered that, there was just a big, I was like a, I was like a horse with a bit. Like, I don't, mm -mm, I don't want to do that. I don't want to sacrifice everything. I don't want to work all the time. I don't want to be gone all the time. Like there was not, even a small part of me that wanted that. Now, I'm married to somebody who does that, who believes, like, lay it all down, sacrifice it all. And I'm so, that was part of the reason I was so passionate about moving our family to Paducah. 
But I just, and it's it's weird because I was a, you know, I'm a valedictorian. I'm a good student. I like to get in the good grades. I like to be in the campus leader. And I like, I do like being busy. I like having a full schedule. I just never really felt that, well, you're not worth it. And I, even though I, I heard the narrative and I got the narrative, like, you're not important unless you're working all the time. I just, I couldn't do it. It's just not who I am. It's 100% who I am. <laughs> my parents worked all the time. My dad on the dairy farm. My mom was a teacher who went in early, brought home papers to grade every night, planned all weekend for the next week. I went to school, did a million extracurricular activities, learned that it wasn't enough to even do the extracurricular activities, but I had to be in charge of all the extracurricular activities. My parents played the piano and were the music minister for our church, so even church was labor. I am from a hardworking people, and then I took myself to law school where the culture is definitely you can never study enough, right? That is true. And then you get out, and what do you do? You sell your time for a living. Mm. And when you sell your time for a living, you can never work enough hours. Absolutely. And it it was very damaging to me. It was very, very damaging to me. <laughs> Chad and I went to see Infinity War about a week ago. We talked about that on Pantsy Politics. And I was walking out with him to the car. We had gotten the girls settled in with dinner and the babysitter, and they were excited that the babysitter was there, and we were excited to be going to the movie. And I was walking out to the car, and I had the strangest feeling. And I thought, what is this? And after a minute or two, I realized it's that I was not preoccupied in any way. Oh, wow. I was just feeling the lightness of going out with my husband, knowing that my kids were having a great time. And I did not have anything on my mind other than going to enjoy this. And honestly, Sarah, it felt like I was in an alien spaceship. It is a feeling that I just haven't had as an adult. I was talking to somebody about it and I said, you know, what I'm realizing is that I'm going through this process of just unlearning Mm -hmm. all the things that I've learned about what it means to be a happy, healthy, responsible adult right now and and figuring out that it's okay to enjoy my work. It's okay to enjoy free time. It's okay to be tired in the afternoon and take a break. It's okay to take a walk. Like it's just, it's remarkable to me how much I have to unlearn because I so internalized exactly what this article is talking about. It's so interesting when you were talking about your mother because this is the story I this was the narrative of my family growing up. So first of all, both of my parents quit their careers um, in probably their early to mid-30s. My mother was a receptionist at the Department of Highways, and my stepfather sold insurance door-to-door. Um, I think my stepfather probably wanted to work less or work in a different way. That's a that's a big – I mean, that's a hard job, selling stuff door-to-door. And then my mother just wanted, I think, more fulfilling work. And so my grandma, this is a story I've heard my whole life. My grandmother said, was a guidance counselor at the time. And she said, you want to be a librarian. It's the best job in the building because there are no license plan, no lesson plans or grading at the end of the day. So like she took the job specifically to avoid additional work while she got home. It's also like, it really is the best gig in the building. And so my mom has been a librarian slash media specialist, what they call themselves now. Um, most of my childhood and adulthood. And then my stepfather became a real estate agent with a highly flexible schedule, doesn't have any problem being like, I worked a lot. I'm going to take this the rest of this day off. 
Um, I, you know, my mother, like the, the one thing you do not want to do is call my mother in the middle of her nap at the, when she gets home from school, she comes home, she takes a nap, she watches TV. Don't mess with her nap. It's a bad idea. She's going to be cranky and she's going to be mean. So like, I just saw these people making choices and protecting their free time, protecting their weekends, spending time with each other. And I, again, it really, I don't, I'm not saying there weren't workaholics in Paducah growing up. I'm sure there were, but just in my memory, looking back on the people in my church, like I saw people who worked hard and loved their work and people who worked, you know, more, more hours than my parents did and made more money than my parents did. But I still felt like these people had free time and leisure time and protected those times and loved being with their families. And I didn't know any different. I didn't think there was any other way to be. And when I saw that this, when I went to particularly D.C. and in law school and set, saw this like, oh, no, we're just supposed to be, this is your whole identity, work the whole time, I just couldn't get on board with it. I just, I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't get it. I just, I guess I just couldn't be like, but there was just a, you know, I'm a questioner anyway. So there was just a big part of me that was like, but why would I do this? Like, why would I do all this? It's not that I don't want to contribute. Like, I'm an Enneagram one. I need to, like, make the world a better place. It's very important to me. But I just couldn't formulate the life I wanted inside that ideal. And so, I mean, again, that's a huge reason I left Washington, D.C., is I just thought I'm never going to want to work as many hours. And I certainly don't want my husband working as many hours as is just the norm around here. I'm not up for it. And it's I think some of it is not just your identity driven, why you have to work that much. But so much of it is the cost of living just keeps getting higher and higher and higher and particularly many of these urban areas. And so unless you have an independent source of income, the more it costs, the more you have to work to earn that money to afford that increasingly high cost of real estate and the increasingly high cost of tuition and all these things. Like it's just, it's a, it's a really vicious cycle. You know, I think there is a huge part of that in cities where I am, I think it is so much less about money and so much more about this sense of tying work to morality. Mm -hmm. Because when I got out of law school, I made a ridiculous amount of money for what I knew and the life experience that I had to bring to my job. And that's how firms work, right? They, They bring you in and they pay you a lot to say, this is going to be really difficult and it's we a long con. stay here through it. It's, it's a long it con. It is a long con. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so I made plenty of money. I always felt like I wasn't billing enough hours. Mm. And it wasn't because I wanted a bonus because I was making plenty of money. I couldn't believe how much money I was making. I'm not motivated by give me more and more money. Now, some people definitely are. And a lot of the people are motivated by how much money am I making versus the person next to me. For me, it was just this sense that I wanted people to know that I was working hard Mm -hmm. and there never seemed to be enough to let people know I was working hard. It just felt like that wasn't possible, that I would ever be doing enough. And I struggle with that even in self-employment now. There are times when I think, am I really going to be finished for the day for the (laughs) podcast? Did I really do enough research to be able to speak intelligently about this? And there are two things about you that have been such a good example for me. The first one is that I think you 
have a real sense that nobody's going to be the boss of you. Oh, no. And mm-hmm. even just making that sense, my whole body reacted when you said the boss of me. Like, my whole body was like, oh, no. Yeah. You are not going to have anybody be the boss of you. No. And it is really hard to get people out of the mindset that somebody is the boss of them. I think most people are wired exactly the opposite of you in that way. I can't tell you how many conversations I had when I was doing HR work where I would say to people, you are not an indentured servant. Mm. If this situation is unacceptable to you, you don't have to work here. And I tried to say that from a loving and caring place, not a don't let the door hit you kind of place, but a place of if you really can't get along with your supervisor, if you really hate the work you're doing, if you really need to leave at four on Friday and your supervisor has said no, You don't have to work here. You Mm -hmm. can choose otherwise for yourself. But that is not how we're wired. I think we are all, not all of us, but so many of us are just looking for constant approval. And anything in the workplace that goes in a way that's contrary to our liking, we feel stuck with. Because we do lose that sense of agency, just like she talks about in the Charlie Rose piece. The other thing about you that has been really a great example for me, Sarah, is that you have so much confidence in your ability to think and you know that you need space to think. And so you allow yourself to have that. And here's what I mean. Like, especially when we first started the podcast, and I think this still happens, I will work myself to death preparing for an episode. I will feel like I can't possibly have enough facts in front of me and enough of a detailed outline. And you will roll in. Mm-hmm. And have one thought that is such a good, interesting, profound thought. And you just trust yourself, you know, to bring that thought forth. And you trust your whole process of getting to that thought. And I've really learned a lot from that. Oh, thank you. Well, I think that this is when I pay it forward and probably start crying because I have so many people like the gra- – so I'm so grateful for the examples I've set. Like when you were talking about no one will be the boss of me, about a, probably a couple months ago I realized like no one in my extended family has bosses. So my mother technically has a principal, but here's a secret. The librarians don't really think the principal is their boss and they kind of just do what they want. Um, my stepfather's a real estate agent. He doesn't have a boss. My aunt was an interior designer, now a real estate agent, no boss. My two uncles sell snap-on tools, own bosses. My grandmother was the guidance counselor, sort of not doesn't have a boss. And my grandfather was a farmer, and my other grandfather was a farmer, and my grandmother, my other grandmother was a seamstress. So I have all, and my father is a loan officer, so often doesn't really sort of work in a traditional boss setup. And I realized, like, I grew up around all these people that were like, yeah, no, I'm going to be my own boss. And especially my both of my, my mother and my stepfather taking that big leap to, like, change their career. So they didn't have a boss and they were in more in control of their lives. It was such a powerful example to me when I look back on it and think about um, that that's what I saw. And, and I really saw these people saying, you know, you only get so many trips around the sun and you need to be in control of that. And I think that was so powerful and such a gift to me growing up. Um, and the rolling, <laughs> the rolling in and trusting my thought, that's probably just because I'm an only child and I'm the oldest of the only child, or I was an only child and I'm the oldest of the grandchildren. So I just had a lot of adults being like, you are so interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> my entire <laughs> childhood, which is a gift, sometimes a burden on my husband. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I had a, a really, I have an amazing family and an amazing mother. So as Mother's Day's here, like, I get a little teary thinking like, 
as much as I would love to just be like bask in the glory and be like, yes, I sprang forth fully formed like this. Aren't I awesome? It's not really true. Technically, I had all these amazing people um, supporting me and showing me like this is the way it is. And, you know, as you're speaking of the morality of working hard, I think that's this that's the trap, right? Like think about what a, a complex psychological place that puts people in that we link this to identity, which is the hardest level of change. We link this to morality so that when you are in this space, not just with like, you know, one side of the spectrum, a supervisor who you don't like or a schedule you don't love, all the way to a truly toxic environment where people are screaming at you or sexually harassing you or worse, sexually assaulting you. And you, your your brain, your whole spirit is is doing these gymnastics of who you think you are, who you've told um, is a good person who works hard and makes things work. And, and it's, you know, it's all tied up all the way into our, like our American ideal that an American is independent and has the total agency and can fix things and solve things. And it's just this toxic soup that I think we need to really spend some time examining. And I hope that Me Too really goes beyond just gender dynamics, but how do we think about work and how do we value people in work and how, you know, one of the best things I've read about the media environment post, um, it was an article post Matt Lauer where someone would said, how about we just don't pay one guy 28 million and we pay everybody more so they have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more individuality and agency and they don't feel so locked into working harder and harder. Everybody can breathe a little bit easier, do a better job. We can pay more people to do the job so there's not so much pressure on the few that remain. And I thought that was brilliant. Like, let's really think, let's take the time to rethink this on every level. I think we need to rethink it on every level too. When I think about especially people coming out of college worried about developing a resume story I need to do this so that I can do that, so that I can do the next thing. That is insane. Mm. And it is in our DNA. And and we as parents pick that up. Mm-hmm. We've talked about extracurricular activities before and how early a lot of us start thinking about how do I make sure that my kids have all the options available to them and particularly the the most exclusive options available to them. For me, when I think about my upbringing, I don't think my parents harmed me in any way by their hard work. What I think is that I took their hard work and viewed it through a child's lens. They probably Mm -hmm. had a lot more balance in their lives than I was aware of, Mm -hmm. but we didn't talk about it. Right. And I do think that they worked very hard. Uh, And I think that they seem to be finding more ease in this stage of their lives. And I admire so many of their choices so much. It does cause me to think about with Jane and Ellen, how can we talk about this? How can we both teach them to learn a lot and give their best effort when they're engaged in something and also to take good rest? Because it's true. One of the things that I'm finding right now, I am doing better work than I've ever done in my life. When I look back at the classes that I'm creating and the coaching that I'm doing, I'm really proud of my work. And it is because I'm giving myself space to think. It's because I'm well rested. It's because I'm working on a schedule that makes sense for me and for my family. It's because my priorities are in order. Our businesses would do well to understand that stressed out, exhausted people who feel oppressed by their supervisors are not the most productive people either. We're just telling ourselves a lie about all of this. 
Well, and I think what I so respect about you and I think will be such a gift to your girls is that it is so easy to maintain the status quo and to create narratives, especially when we're facing something scary, especially when it's it's facing, you know, saying exactly what you just said, which is, I, you know, my, I don't, my choices did not serve me. That's a really hard thing to say as a human being. And to be able to say that and look at it with an open eyes and open hearts and just say, man, I, I made the wrong choice and it cost me. Like that's, I think that is the most difficult thing to do as a human being. And to be able to do that and face it and say, okay, what do I do next? Even though it's hard, even though it's scary, even though, you know, I don't know what's on the other end of it. I mean, that's going to be your girls are maybe they'll be on a podcast one day crying about how they saw you do this, just like I saw my parents do it. Thank you. I it is hard. It's very hard when you go from a really easy way to tell people what you do for a living that Mm -hmm. they're going to be impressed by to where I am today. (laughs) Um, The book. They like the book. You can talk about the book. People really like the book. Their eyes light up. People do like the book. Yes. Uh, But to let go of needing that kind of reaction from people is a big deal. I think to go from making more money than I knew what to do with to I don't know if we can make this last for very long. uh, It creates a different kind of stress. But what I know is that I am capable of loving them better and loving my husband better than I was at this time last year. And that to me is my priority right now. And then when I scale that out, right, I got myself very worked up about paid family leave doing some research for a talk that I gave this week. When I scale that out, I think, what are we doing if that isn't our priority? Mm -hmm. What are we doing if we say it costs a business too much to support a worker through a temporary period of either celebration or crisis? Like, what do, you, what do you mean it costs too much? Mm. It doesn't cost too much. To get somebody into your company who's really good at what they do, that is an expensive proposition. And if we have decided as a society that that person's hours are the most critical thing to us, so much so that when she has a baby or his wife has cancer or their mother dies... We can't spare those hours. We would rather lose this person and all of their knowledge and all of their loyalty and everything they contribute to our company's culture in favor of spending money on recruiting somebody new, hiring them and getting them up to speed. And a couple years later, maybe them being as valuable as the person who just walked out the door. That's what the conversation about paid leave is. And that 100% comes from this industrial era thinking that we are all nothing more than the number, the sheer volume of hours we spend working. Yeah, it's like a very like widgets. How many widgets did you make today? And that's just that that doesn't match anything about what actually provides value in our economy now. But even more than that, even if we were still on widgets, God, like our, our families and the propagation of our species and our spiritual and emotional lives not more important than that. I guess it depends on who you ask. And hopefully, you know, I think the the best part of me, too, is everybody's asking those questions and looking and being like, ooh, I don't like that person's answer. Maybe they shouldn't be in charge anymore. 
Well, thank you for joining us for this conversation about the glamorization of work. We can't wait to hear y'all's feedback. So I got I to gotta sense you're going to have some things to say about this. Up next, we're going to share a little bit of inspiration to send you into the rest of your week. This is Patience by Neva Flores. Acceptance is so hard sometimes, but it's all that you can do when you don't know what you want and why you do the things you do. You are holding on to a dream so tight, so afraid you will awake, so you shut your eyes and stay asleep, and one more step you take. When one loves without demands, never questioning even why, blindly following with all their heart and trusting with unseen eyes. What joy can be found in all of this, so very much if one does wish to patiently see what the future holds for a love as strong as this. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be on Pansy Politics on Friday and Tuesday, back here next Wednesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.